If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, we're going to finish this morning. We do thank Karen and Ian for leading us last Sunday in the Back to School with God service, and we thank them for that. And I bring to you the greetings of the folks at Nightsweet. I'm going back to Nightsweet in a few weeks' time um, to do something else for them, um, and do remember that congregation. But we thank God for his servants here last week. But this week, we're just going to draw together some of the thoughts and threads of this chapter. But we're going to turn to Romans, actually, chapter 2, okay? And we're going to read a few verses here, and then we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. So, if you have your Bible, if you don't have one, please feel free to get one. Get up and go get one from the back, one of the folks at the back, so make sure you get one. Because it is, it will be hard not to follow if you don't have the text in front of you. Romans chapter 2, and reading from verse 1. Paul's spoken of how the wrath of God is revealed, and he's expanded about that. We're going to reflect a wee bit about that. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says this, You, therefore, have no excuse. And this is him now speaking to the Christians, to the church in Rome. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else... For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And then to chapter 8 in the book of Romans and in verse 18. Again, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Amen. And may God give us understanding and help as we reflect upon his word together. 
I'm sure, as I mentioned in prayer, we have all been troubled over this past week and more, maybe, at the situation in Afghanistan. We've seen the harsh reality of the situation brought home to us as we've watched it on TV or followed it in some form of social media or followed it in a newspaper. And, of course, the blame game. If you listen to any of these programs, the blame game has already been started. It's all the United States probe fault, or it's the fault of our Prime Minister, or the Foreign Secretary, didn't he make a phone call when he was on his holidays, or it's the fault of the Afghans themselves, because their army wasn't up to fighting, or whatever it may be, the blame game has started. Of course, the harsh reality is, and, and we have to be honest about this, Afghanistan has been a failed state since the year dot, riven by tribal defense, dis dissensions, and, and never really a coherent society in the way we kind of know, then it's had a history of flinging people out. Britain got flung out from Afghanistan way back in the 19th century. The Russians, if you remember, invaded in 1980, and they got flung out. And actually, ironically, some of the people who have been fighting against the Allied or the NATO forces over this past year were the very same people or in the same kind of groups that the West funded secretly in the 1980s to cause the Russians problems. And so like a boomerang, it's come back to hit us square in the face. And of course, things could have been done differently. Hindsight, isn't it? As I get, sign of getting old, isn't it? Hindsight is a great thing. And of course, things could have been done differently. But I think the reality I would share with friends is we could have stayed for 200 years. And things still would have been pretty chaotic. And no nation, I heard a journalist last night, as there's their woke to say, oh, of course, any nation should be able to take out anybody who needs to get out. Well, thankfully, I think it was the Defence Secretary or the Armed Forces Secretary who reminded folk this morning, the harsh reality is no nation is able to take out everybody who might want to get out. That is the harsh reality. Paul was all about reality. Not the type of reality that we see on TV that titivates the senses and provides a bounty for gossip on social media, but the kind of reality that in fact most folks in the Western world don't want to recognize. We choose to ignore it because it's too uncomfortable, provocative, disturbing, and challenging. But Paul here in this letter to this church, this church back in chapter 1 that he speaks warmly about, verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel but also to you in Rome. Here is someone who's desperate to meet with the Roman church, to visit this congregation or these congregations in the center of Roman power, the center of the empire, the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And we've got to understand, I'm sure we do, that the folks living in that Roman empire, they thought that was the world. They weren't members of the Flat Earth Society, but effectively the world ended at the end of the Mediterranean and stop somewhere down the Red Sea, uh, and stop somewhere in the desert wastes of, of, of Turkey. That was, and the north, well, they were just the, they were the barbarians further up there, you know. 
That was the world as people saw. They had their limited view of the world as we have our limited view of the world. And Paul wanted to speak to these Romans, but he did so. I mean, let's be honest, if you're trying to ingratiate yourself, well, yes, you would tell people how much you were keen to see them, but you would hardly begin in verse 18 by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You would never tend to go in easy, soft, say something else, speak much about the love of God. Certainly not about his wrath. And yet Paul goes right in there because if they're going to understand why the gospel is so important, this good news that's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, if they're going to really understand that, they've actually got to understand how desperately in need humanity is of the good news. We don't live in a world, we never have. But we don't live in a world today where there's a kind of, you know, we're all Jock Tamsons bairns, and we're all kind of roughly in this, and there's some who are keen and enthusiastic and come to the church and whatever else and openly profess faith, but the rest of the folks are kind of, oh, well, we're all just kind of floating along. You know, there's a bridge there, and we all just kind of float along. We certainly don't live in that world today if we actually ever did. And the call of the gospel and the good news that God has in Jesus Christ made it possible for sinful, fallen human beings who are separated from a holy God, all that we thought about the other Sunday from Genesis chapter 3, that God's made it possible for us to renew a relationship with God, to walk with Him and talk with Him in the cool of the day, all of that. God has done all of that, offered all of that in Jesus Christ because our situation is so dire. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? That Paul has emphasized that. Think of John the Baptist as he began or as he preached in his ministry, the ministry pointing towards the coming of Jesus. His great job was to be the preparer of the way. And yet, how does he, well, at least Luke tell us, how does he begin preparing the way by softening it up with sweet honeyed phrases. No, he says this, John the Baptist said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, Mark particularly focuses in on that, Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, when he begins that, says this, the time has come. And in Hebraic tradition, the time is not just the time like five past 11 on a Sunday morning. It means the, the, the event, the great event, God's time has come. The day of his coming has come. What does he say? The kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn round, radically alter in the direction where you're going and believe the good news. And so where Paul here in Romans speaks about the wrath of God, he's laying out for us the bad news in order that we and others may appreciate the good news. Any good clinician will do that. They will tell you, yes, might say it politely and graciously and whatever else, hopefully they'll do that, but they'll tell you the bad news before they can offer the good news. 
the bad news is. And again, I'm just trying to draw together threads because my rambling thoughts itself, I even think I had to draw together threads, so you must be completely sometimes lost. Uh, the wrath of God, it says, has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what Paul is saying here is inbuilt into a fallen humanity, into a fallen world, is that tendency, a very strong tendency, ebbs and flows with the times and the, through the history of humanity, but a tendency to deny that there is a creator God. Think of your own family. Think of your son or daughter or your grandson or daughter. And think perhaps sometimes as a grand how they might respond to you when, when you go, oh, well, grand, that's, you need that. That's what, you know, you've been brought up to believe. But, oh, no, really. You know, we're past that stage. We've moved on from that. It's an irrelevance. It's nonsense. It's maybe even dangerous. And that spirit, that spirit of anti-God, Suppressing the truth creates the environment, Paul tells us here, for all sorts of things. It leads to the futility and darkness of so much thinking. Verse 21, for although the you God that neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the phrase meaning futile means it actually becomes pointless, is unable to deliver what their thoughts might desire. That journalist last evening was very sincere. No doubt she was very troubled by what she saw of the needs of Afghanistan. And she can sit in her house, wherever it was, on Zoom or whatever means they have, and she can say every nation should be able and can go and deliver everybody they need to deliver from Afghanistan. She can talk and she means that. She's actually talking a load of baloney. And if she's watching, I'm sorry, Hen, but you were. A load of baloney. It's based neither in fact nor the testimony of history. But we live in a day where baloney becomes truth, where falsehoods become what's accepted as reality. And people often very generally, desperately concerned about this or that or other issue in society believe it because their minds are darkened and their thinking has become futile, and their foolish hearts are led astray. And I'm, and I'm conscious I'm going to be very direct, but that is the reality that many of your children and grandchildren are living in. And accept as gospel. It's manifest in some tangible ways. And we touched upon the whole degradation of sexuality. Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We were made in the image of God, male and female. Back to Genesis. 
and one of the tangible signs of how degraded and futile and wayward our thinking is, is that now we celebrate everything that's contrary to God's creation ordinances. And as we degrade our understanding of sexuality and therefore degrade our understanding of what it is to be made in the image of God, but then God doesn't exist, it doesn't really matter because we have God and we can choose not just the color on our walls, but what sexual preference we have uh, and what is right. We even now, and this is as a historian, I find this very disturbing. We take history and we can choose to dismantle it and remake it in the way that suits us or furthers our own arguments or the arguments of some academic or some philosopher somewhere suits the arguments of people today. And that's what's happening. The demolishing of history. The recreating of fantasy. My friends, that's what totalitarian governments do from history. Rewrite it to suit themselves. And we're seeing that even here in our own society. And all of that leads, and Paul goes on to say, furthermore, verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind. Again, the word there speaks of a mindset that is on a journey into darkness, into the abyss. So they do what ought not to be done. And interesting here, Paul brings out a whole host of things, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We see universally the decay of values, security, stability, and healthiness of society in general. Things that ought not to be done are elevated and thought that's the way to get on in life, to secure your own interests, to feather your own nest, to have control over others. And the fragmentation and decay with our own society, and I generally feel for teachers who are on the front line of having to try and patch things together. Nothing to do with this. No, no, your fault. You're having to do the best you can. As the fragmentation and breakdown of society continues. And the solemn thing is that God has given us over to these things. Three times God say, Paul says, God has given us over. Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. I still remember my last congregation, a lovely lady, Julie Snedden, not Julie, Julie McCann, sorry, not Julie Snedden. She's a lovely lady too, Julie. Yeah, but a lady you remind me of actually, Julie McCann, a lovely lady whose son, come to faith in my predecessor ministry, whose son was an alcoholic. And in my predecessor's time, and when I came at first, she had tried everything to help him, to support him, to encourage him in every way possible, but he was set on the road. And eventually, with the help of Al-Anon, the group that supports the family of those who are alcoholics and indeed drug addicts as well, unfortunately, she had to let him go. And it was the most painful thing she'd ever had to do. And they'd been in her house and she was breaking her heart. She heard you some time down the line that he was not well and I went to visit him in South Carentine, a bit of Glasgow that's now knocked down. And I sat in this, went up these smelly stairs, needles lying into this 
terrible situation in the house. He's lying as yellow as, well, where's your jacket, Pommy? Or, in fact, more yellow. You're one, Margaret. Yellow with the John Guns. Dying. And yet, in his deathbed, he said, you know, my mum, she did the right thing. But at his very end, he realized that in love, she had let him go. And that's what the Bible means by God giving us over. It doesn't mean he rejoices over the mess the world is in. It doesn't mean he's happy and has a round of applause with the angels at the degradation and decay of society and the use and abuse of humanity. But God has said, and we can't, we're only using human language to try to imagine that which is beyond in many ways our comprehension. God says, well, if you really want to go down that road, go down that road. In the yearning, that in the blackness and in the brokenness and the futility and fragility of all that we see, there will be those who in darkness will cry out for the light of life. God has given us over. And lastly, before we sing a hymn, going to sing. Sorry for that. But lastly, before we have a sing and a wee break, because I think we need that. These verses from Romans 8. That's why I read those verses, Romans 8. We see all of that actually in creation itself. We're all aware, aren't we, of the COP summit that's been held in Glasgow. How many folk is it that's coming over for Elizabeth? How many? 30,000. Tell you, get your mask on that week. Creation is groaning. Those verses, Paul's saying a lot in those verses, far more than we're looking at, but those verses from Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, for creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. The mountains, the valleys, the bees, all of creation stands as witness against humanity. Why is it in the mess it's in? It's because we've used it and abused it for our selfish interests. That's why creation is groaning. We were supposed to be stewards of creation. Again, go back to Genesis. We were given the responsibility, the, the highest responsibility under God himself to care for creation. And what have we done? It bears witness against humanity. It bears testimony to God's justice. And it warns us of the consequences as we live for self. Groaning, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. That's our world, my friends. I'm sorry. It's bad use. Sorry. If you came for a week, Cheer up today. We'll come on Tuesday morning. That's usually a bit brighter, isn't it? <laughs> that's a time for that, but there's also a time for the reality. And that's the situation we face in our world and in our society today. Let's sing together a hymn that speaks about creation and gives us time to reflect and to gather our thoughts.
I remember sitting with my brother and my dad in the consultant's room at the Royal as we were told the full story and plight of where my mum was in her decline in health and with the spread of the cancer. And he very kindly, graciously, but nonetheless very clearly through photographs and other things showed us that the end was near. Or rather, the end wasn't near, but the end was going to come. But after he went on about that, and then he went on for some time talking about Carmyle, Canvas Lang, and Rutherglen, how it was a toxic zone to live in. There we are, Meryl. Um, and, and everything else. And that's perhaps why both he, both my mum and dad, and many others, many others within my congregation at Carmyle suffered from cancer. We were left kind of thinking, well, that's all very well. But the answer that, or the stirring from my heart and my brother's heart was, well, but what are we going to do about it? Okay, that's the reality but how are we going to deal with it? And that's the situation here. Paul, here and elsewhere in the Bible, and indeed the New Testament generally, affirms the reality of the need of the brokenness of humanity. What, how are we to respond? And that's the second part, which is a bit briefer than the first part, we're going to turn to. And that's why I read those verses from Romans chapter 2. That's why I read those verses from Romans chapter 2. How do we respond to it? Will we respond to that reality? And I've even got a separate page for this point. There we are. We respond to that by not pointing the finger or being judgmental. Now, that's important to say that. One can declare the reality, but there is no place for us saying, and we're okay, mate. Look at them. And that's an important difference. Interesting, Paul makes that very clear. Let me just again briefly read those verses. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. That's an important word to the church today. It is easy, perhaps, to stand on the sidelines and point the finger at this group or that group, this situation or that particular sin. But in truth, as we see the speck in others' eyes, the church and we as individuals are often blind about the log in our own. And the church of Jesus Christ in the West has little cause for pride. Or to think that somehow apart from are not impacted by the same spirit of ills that are seen in society today. This last 18 months have revealed that. As far as the church is concerned, and as you know now, when I say it about the church, I'm talking about the church. Not point the finger at any particular congregation, but the church. And I've mentioned before a number of occasions that there's certainly a whole battalion of younger men, particularly in ministry, pastors and teachers and others that I've had contact with over these past 18 months, who are not pointing the finger at me or my generation, but are raising very real questions as to how the church has become so enfeebled and weakened and in many ways is seen largely as an irrelevance in our society. Why has that come about? 
We're not here to answer that question this morning, but all I'm saying is we therefore have little cause to say, well, we're okay. And that's, of course, always a temptation. We retreat into a form of pietistic evangelicalism where we pat each other on the back and we say, well, we're okay, mate, and, well, the world's going to hell anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But that's not what the calling of the church is to be. We are to be salt and light. We are to provide a countercultural witness to what it means to live as part of the kingdom of God. And so how we live together, how we relate together, and yes, the wholeness and well-being. And in that sense, and I emphasize I'm not talking materially here, but in that sense, the prospering of our lives and our life together as families and as communities, that's a witness to our community. And I know it is actually here in Arrington. And when within the church, and this is Paul's very point here, when within the church the spirit of the world enters in, and however that may manifest itself, then we certainly are on dangerous ground. Now, we know that God's judgment against those things who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Hypocrisy is very evident and fuels the fires of those who say, well, if that's the church, you can keep it. If that's the faith, if that's Christianity, well, no wonder it's a problem. That's how people think. And we have to, whether that's our own personal situation or not, we all have to say, we're sorry, God. But perhaps as our children grew up within the life of the church, they didn't see Jesus in the way they should have. Or we didn't help them to think through the spirit of the age in which they were living in. And they've imbibed of that and rejected the truth. We can't wash our hands of that. So we don't point the finger or are judgmental. Secondly, Romans 8, we wait in hope. You know, one of the things, again, I, I notice, and I'm not, and this is where I'm very conscious, that there's coming a day where we do need some help from somebody more younger and more tuned in to those things. Because I struggle, I struggle. I'm sure you agree, struggle to try to get the spirit of the age. But one of the things we, I pick up, I'm sure you pick up, is the sense of hopelessness that many feel. What's the point? And, and, and it doesn't mean that they go off and, thankfully, commit suicide or do that. What they tend to do is they treat into themselves or their own little bubble. All that bubble stuff last year, really, in many ways, was the spirit of the age. As long as you look after yourself and your own kind of kith and kin, well you're, well, you're okay. You can keep the world out there. You can keep COVID at bay, yes, but you can also keep everything else at bay. That is a fallacy. That's another false truth. But anyway, that's another story, isn't it? But that's what happens. And when hope goes then that opens the ground for the toxic brew of fear, of jealousy, of anger, of resentment, of cynicism, and of skepticism to grow. And all of those words, and I'm noticing, I'm reading quite a lot this morning because I'm trying, very careful trying to communicate this. All of those words, think about them. Do you not see them in our society? Perhaps even amongst people we know and we love and care for. 
And that grows up. That doesn't mean we necessarily join anti-vaccine brigades, believe the latest conspiracy theory or anything else. It probably means for most folk we just get wearied, switched off, and don't give a toss really about very much apart from what's happened to our own lives. The Christian is called to be radically different. Paul, those verses, and again, there's far more on this than we're looking at. But verse 18 of Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He tells us that creation, verse 21, is longing for the day when it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says that we, verse 23, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That stained glass window there. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says in Colossians. It's that blessed hope that there is a future that there is a promise of a new beginning, that there will be a new heaven and earth, that God has the, won the victory over the powers of death and darkness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ affirms that every Sunday as we gather together as believers, we are celebrating the fact that God has the final say. He, as Member Ian telling us once long ago, the book of Revelation, in all its complexity, tells us Jesus wins. Amen. I heard somebody hear somebody say amen. Well, bless you, brother or sister. Amen. Jesus wins. And he who brought his son from the grave is the same God who lives within your heart and mind by the Holy Spirit. The resurrection already can be, in a sense, entered into. And as Christians, we need to allow that hope to permeate our very being. God's perfect love casts out all fear, including fear of COVID-19. That doesn't mean we're careless or complacent, but it does mean we don't live under the fear of it. We wait in hope. We don't point the finger. We wait in hope. And lastly, when unconscious time is going, we pray in the Spirit. When I came to park. 22 years ago, help my goodness, right away, the first Saturday after I came, I was told in the night of the induction, the Wednesday night, the Thursday night, whenever it was, that there was a prayer meeting on a Saturday morning, so there was me, a bit of a long Saturday morning. I also was told that Mr. White, my very esteemed predecessor, used to be down at the church at six o'clock in the morning, cooking ham and bacon and rolls and all the rest of it, and he provided breakfast for everybody. Right away that very first night on my induction, I thought, well, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> Mr. White was an early riser. I believe, Margaret, you used to tell me that. You would deliver the papers, I think it was, in Douglas Gardens at some, dare I say, unearthly hour, and he was already attending the means of grace. What a saint. I'm lying in my bed. <laughs> but can I say, and I'm saying this to encourage you perhaps to come on Zoom on a Saturday morning once a fortnight and join us, in all those years, we haven't spent hours, as some of you may know what prayer meetings were like, spent hours going through the list of things, you know. Mrs. McGee's bunion, Mr. Smith's fall, and this situation and that situation. Yes, sometimes things are shared. Of course, they are in conversation before we start. But we generally wait upon the Spirit to lead us in prayer. And I think it's fair to say in those 22 years, I've never known a time when we've run out of steam. In fact, there's been times we've had to draw a close because, well, there's other things happening. 
We pray dependent on the Spirit of God. That's what Paul is saying here, verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. There is direct access. Long before Zoom or anything else was invented, we have access to that throne of grace where our great high priest lives to intercede for us. The prayers of the saints ascend like a fragrant offering into the very throne room of Almighty God. That should give us hope, friends. That should stir our hearts. That should call us to pray. So how do we respond? We don't point the finger or be judgmental. We try to understand the times in which we live. That's what I've been, perhaps not very well, but that's what I've been trying to do over these last few Sundays. We wait and hope. Yes, for that day when the Lord returns, I was lunch this week with James, who works for Release International. I was asking about the church in Afghanistan, the persecuted church. We were sharing many things, and yet we were both saying that we, what stands out amongst the believers of the suffering church is that they have a hope. They believe firmly what verse 28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even as they're in jail, even as they're believers, perhaps this morning in Afghanistan, waiting for that knock on the door. I don't think the Taliban will knock on the door. They'll just break it down. Even then they have that hope that is steadfast and sure and keeps the soul we pray in the spirit. God's wrath is being revealed. Men and women need to repent. God's church needs to be honest about its state. God's people need not to lose hope. And you and I, when we don't know what to pray about, we simply ask God by his spirit to enable us to intercede for our world. The news is bad, but the gospel's far more glorious. All praise and glory be to him. Let's pray together. Lord, all I can say as we draw to a close is the word from, words from your word. That the words of my mouth, frail and fragile as they are, but the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts will have been and will be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Let's finish our service by singing together a song. And we sing this to a tune that we know, but in order to do that, we need to repeat the last line. You'll know it once we start singing it, you'll hear it. It was that long since we've been singing things up. I'm sure we kind of forget. But as soon as you start hearing the tune, you'll hear it. And we'll sing together, repeat the last line, 
and, and as we do so, Janice will lead us in our praise. Father, although I cannot see the future you have planned, and though the path is sometimes dark and hard to understand, yet give me faith through joy and pain to trace your loving hand, to trace your loving hand. Thanks, Janice. And let's say the words of the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all evermore. Please be seated.